give me a cup of water. Sorry. The Apostle Paul makes the statement that knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. It is a, a deep passion in the heart of the Apostle that drives him on his mission, knowing the fear and the holy awe and the glory and the greatness of God, and that, as the writer of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire, and knowing that about our God, and seeing Christ in His resurrected glory, in His power, in His enthronement, these kinds of pictures compel the Apostle Paul to be a persuader of men. He wants to move men away from those self-manufactured idols of their hearts and move them to embrace the Lord of heaven itself. How do you do that? And you may not be the Apostle Paul. You're probably not. You may not be called to be a preacher You may not be called to be an evangelist, but as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, surely we can all agree that we must have a sense of the burden of the lostness of the world. And we long to see those of every tongue and people and language and nation come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we live lives that display the glory of God. We speak if we're given opportunity. We speak if we're challenged to give an answer for the reason that we, that we hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We support the preaching of the Word of Christ. We support missions. We support missionaries. We, we pray for the cause of the Gospel to spread throughout the world that the Kingdom of God might advance. It's a great opportunity right there for a commercial Because this Wednesday night, we talked, Paul announced a moment ago, that this Wednesday night is the first Wednesday of the month when we have adopted as a church to pray for the cause of missions and the spread of the kingdom, the advance of the gospel in the world. And if you're not doing anything on Wednesday night, I would encourage you, joyfully encourage you, clear off your calendar, come and gather with your brothers and sisters and pray. But perhaps you can't do that. Maybe you're too far away, you're too busy, you can't do that. I would encourage you to take time, either that night or somewhere else, some other time. Take time to pray and plead with God. Because as Jesus said, the harvest is what? It's ripe. The fields are ripe unto harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest might send out those reapers, if you will preachers to go into the four corners of the world. Have that as a a rising burden on your heart as a believer. You might sit there and say, I'm not a missionary. Well, that's okay. You can pray for a missionary. (laughs) You can pray for missions. You can pray for the spread and the advance of the gospel in the world. Have that as a rising passion and burden on your heart. And take a principle from the Apostle Paul. Knowing the fear of God, we want to, as a body, as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ, we want to persuade people to believe on the Lord Jesus. Why? Because if they don't believe in the Lord Jesus, what else is left but to fall into the hands of a living God who is a consuming fire? We, 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 we don't think that way. Our, our daily lives are not conditioned to... To, to, our daily lives are not structured to condition our minds to think with that kind of 
urgency about the state of the people that we encounter every day or the people that we hear about somewhere in the world. But the believing heart, the heart that believes on the Lord God, the heart that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, the heart that believes in the Word of God, taking these things infinitely seriously, should contemplate the state of the wicked and the destiny of the wicked. Outside of Christ, they are lost and they are going to be exposed to the wrath of God. How do we persuade these kinds of people? Well, one way that's been said to persuade these kinds of people is to hold out to the people that we're going to speak to, or the missionary is going to speak to, or perhaps you have someone in your own family that you want to talk to, and and, and you persuade men by holding forth the glories of God, the greatness of God, the beauty of God. Maybe, Maybe we consider the attributes of God. God is holy. God is righteous. He is loving. He is in all things precious and beautiful. He is 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 perfect. He is he is he is good. He is kind. And so we begin to hold out the glories of God and the greatness of God and the mercies of God and the might of God and we hold these glorious attributes of God out for people to see and we hope that these kinds of things will compel people and draw people to Christ. But you and I know that that doesn't always work, does it? People aren't always drawn to those kinds of things. So, so what, else, what else is in our, not a bag of tricks, so to say, but, but what else can we use to persuade people to believe upon the Lord? Perhaps we can hold to them the glories of the incomparable and excellent Jesus. We can show them Christ. We can show them Christ in His glory in heaven. How He is eternal with the Father. He is one with the Father. He is absolutely holy. Absolutely sufficient. Absolutely needing nothing. But humbles Himself and becomes incarnate. How He walks among us as a sympathetic friend. As like the proverb says, like a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Maybe we can hold to them the beauty of Jesus in His humiliation. How He suffered how he was mocked, how he was scoffed at, how he was lied about, how he bore our burdens, not only in his living in this world, but ultimately in our dying on the cross. He went to the cross and he died for sinners. He, the holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, righteous one, the just one, he treated as if sin. I was talking to a guy the other day and and I asked him what he's preaching on for Easter, and, and he said, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who made... He who... Isn't that great? You know, it's like, uh, it's like this cartoon I have of the preacher that went out, you know, to, the guy's making his point, and his finger, like, breaks. You know, you know it's, it's, it's a real bad moment there when you have that, that brain dump. And uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, how many thousands of times in my life have I done that? Alright, for our sake, He made Him who knew no sin, what? Sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Save, recover. Okay, now we're back on. So, So we hold out these amazing things about Jesus. And we think that's compelling. Jesus is a friend. Jesus is a lover. Jesus is a giver. Jesus is kind. Jesus intercedes for me now before the throne of God. He's my advocate. He's my defense attorney before the throne of God. 
Surely these things will compel people to come and believe in Jesus. But they often don't. So we think, let's tell them about the Holy Spirit. Another comforter that Jesus sends to His church to seal them and indwell them and empower them for godly living, the kind of life they've always wanted to have in this world, a life full of joy and peace and holiness and happiness in God forever. It's given by the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of truth who teaches them and leads them out of error and leads them into the wonders of the truth of God. And you think, well, that sounds good. Those things all sound great. He indwells you. He secures you. He's the Erebon. He's the guarantee. He's the the engagement ring that the Father gives to the church to say, I'm coming back for you. I'm going to take you to be with me forever. Those things all sound great, don't they? But you understand, we're preaching to the choir. For the most part. What do we do when the glories of God and the incomparable excellencies of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the blessings that He brings us in the Gospel seem to fall short of compelling people? What else might we use? What else is given to us in the Scripture? Well, I would draw your attention to the book of Revelation in chapter 14. And I want to show you a text that John is given to give to the church where one final push is made for the nations to repent and believe in the gospel and in the spirit of John the Baptist the nations are exhorted to flee not to the glories of God not to the incomparable excellencies of Jesus and not to the blessings of the Holy Spirit but they are exhorted to flee from the wrath to come. The terrors of hell are an effective means of evangelism in the gospel. We often hear things like hell, fire, and brimstone preaching mocked. What do you want to do? Scare them into heaven? I'll go with that. John went with that. Jesus did that. And the Apostle John is given a message that does that very thing. As Nathan said a little while ago, as he walked by my iPad, he noticed my notes, he said, the terrors of hell on Easter? Really? Really. I want you to see it. And I want you to consider it. And I want you to hear what John has to say. I think it's very fitting for us to consider on such a day. For it is the very terrors of hell that Christ has been raised from the dead to spare us from. So let this be a text that causes you as a believer in Christ to rejoice. And let it be a text if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to make you fear. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, 
with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God! And give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of her passion, of her sexual immorality. Another angel, a third, followed saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on its forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle, and reap, for the hour to reap is come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. In this text we are shown that the terrors of God and the terrors of hell and the sure and certain wrath of God that is going to fall upon all the unbelieving in the world for as Jude would say, for all their ungodly deeds that they have done in an ungodly way is a proper means of evangelizing the nations. We would prefer a kinder, gentler, even more precious and beautiful approach. And that's not wrong. Because the scripture is filled with those kinds of admonitions as well. But what would you use to compel a child 
to not run into the street into an oncoming car. You might compel him with wonderful things in the house to do and to enjoy. You might compel him with your love and your care and your presence with them in the yard. You might play with them and sit down and enjoy time with them and talk about the family and talk about how wonderful things are in the family, in the yard. And as the child inches closer to the street where the busy cars are going by, you might find yourself getting up from the yard and moving closer to the edge of the street with the child. And when the child begins to dart out into the road, you wouldn't sit there and say, I told him how nice things were at home. I told him how sweet it was that I loved him. The old preacher years ago said, Some want to live within the sound of chapel bell, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gate of hell. I believe it was Spurgeon who said, men may go to hell. Men may run headlong to hell. And I'm paraphrasing. But let them go over my body. Let them step over me on the way in. You would run to the street. You would push a child out of the way. Because the fear of the cars would what? Persuade you to persuade them with everything you had. If you really believed what this passage has to say. Do we as a church really believe what a passage like this has to say? Well, challenge us with it today. I want us to consider it today. Because again, as I said, in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, apart from believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what awaits all men. But in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is protection from the wrath to come. There is peace and joy to be found in the glories of God and the excellencies of Jesus and the wonders of the Gospel. I want to set out three things for you to consider with me in this text. In the time that we have today, we may or may not be able to get done with all of them. It's a long passage. There is a lot here. And some we will probably skip over and not delve uh, in too deeply. Three points by way of observation. Number one, the first observation I want to make is what I've called a shot across the bow. A shot across the bow. Number two, after the shot across the bow is given, there will be a real sense of relief to know that there is a word of encouragement here that is given to the church. A word of encouragement that is given to the church. A shot across the bow, a word of encouragement given to the church, and then there is a clear vision that is set forth of the second coming judgment of Jesus. I thought about ways to make those points more attention-getting and more gripping, but I could not. So those were as boring as I could possibly muster for today. And uh, <clears throat> But I hope that the consideration of these Uh, points and these texts will rest and impress upon us a sense of the urgency of the hour, Um, both an urgency to rejoice and an urgency 
to pause and consider the state of our own soul. A shot across the bow, a word of encouragement to the church, and a clear vision of the second coming judgment of the nations. First, let's consider this shot across the bow. Now we all know that shot across the bow, that warning shot, it's it's being given. You come any closer, it's going to get like a shot, you know, right in the hull of the boat. Uh, So we're just trying to get the attention of people. And in verses 6 through 11, we have a shot across the bow. And in particular, we have three shots across the bow. All right? Three angels. One angel is going to shoot one, another angel is going to shoot another, and a third angel is going to come and shoot the third. Shot number one is found in verses 6 to 7. And I call this shot a call to repentance. A call to repentance. John says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Notice the location of the angel. He is flying in John's vision. He is directly overhead. He doesn't see the angel far off in the distance. He doesn't see the angel right in his face. He sees the angel right above his head, hanging there, flying there, ominously right above. Just like you and I might see a storm roll off. And you might see the storm off. and then Oh, well, that's, that's, falling, on, that's falling on Dallas. Or that's hitting Benbrook. Sorry, guys. It's not getting us. We're good. All right. I uh, heard you got some big hail. You get big hail down there the other day? We got the little pea-sized type hail or something like that. So um, I rejoice for me, and I hope it didn't hurt y'all. But you know, it, it wasn't the cloud that was off in the distance. It was the cloud that was dark and pressing and hanging right above your head. He's flying in mid-air. This message, or this angel, is given a message. And notice the message's identity. It is an eternal gospel. I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim. This is none other than the gospel of the resurrected Christ, the resurrected triumphant Christ. We're going to see more about the content of that gospel in just a moment. But I want you to notice there the identification of the message. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's that euangelion. It's that message of sweet, savoring goodness that we bring to people. It's going to be couched in this particular text in some pretty dark and foreboding terms. But it's a good news message. And notice the recipients of the proclamation. To whom is this message given? He is to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. And specifically, it says, in very universalistic terms, it says, proclaim it to every nation and tribe and language and what? People. And we've seen those designations before as a summation of the totality of the peoples of the world. God is going to save people out of every tribe and tongue and language and people and nation. God's going to have a a, a representative body around His throne from all the nations of the world as well, but also represented from all the nations of the world will be all those that are outside the kingdom of God. All those that are outside the city. 
Notice the content of the call. What is said to them? He says with a loud voice, a commanding voice, a voice to get the attention of the people, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. What are they to do? They are to fear God. They are to give God glory. They are to worship God. Why? Notice it says, because the hour of His judgment has come. No longer is the little child in the house or just in the yard. The hour of judgment has come. There is eminent danger at this. This is this final, if you will, appeal. This shot across the bow. I don't know what else to try with these people. I'm going to try to get their attention by this kind of a means. It's interesting that this kind of kind of approach is often reserved for the last, isn't it? It's like the last ditch effort when you're talking to somebody. You, you want to appeal with, with those lighter things, those easier things. Uh, but here, uh, it is the wrath of God, uh, the judgment of God that is coming upon the world. They are called to fear God, to reverence God. They are called to give God glory. They are called to worship Him. Why? Remember the context of the passage in chapters 12 and 13. What have they been fearing? What have they been giving glory? What have they been worshiping? The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Men are swayed by the amazing powers of the world and they are pulled away from the worship of of God. They are representative of those in Romans chapter 1 who have been what given over to worship what ought not to be worshiped. They they are worshipers of the creature rather than the creator whom Paul says is forever blessed. This shot across the bow is a final call to repentance. It makes me think of the passage in Hebrews where it says as long as it's called what? As long as it's called today The opportunity for salvation is open. Perhaps you know someone you have completely given up on. You know someone like that? They'll never get saved. Perhaps you used to be that person. So I want you to contemplate and consider. God gives a day. He gives a day. He gives a time. This is a gracious thing. These are people who have signed up with the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, yet God still shoots across the bow and says, Fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him. Even in the midst of great dire circumstances, God extends this gospel shot across the bow. Secondly, He throws another shot or shoots another shot across the bow. And that's what I would call a consideration of ruin. Look in verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of her passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon. Babylon is mentioned several times in the book of Revelation from this point on. I believe this is the first time he's actually come out and used the, 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 the concept of Babylon. Who, who is Babylon? Well, Babylon has a long history in, in the, the Scripture. 
In the days of the first century, Babylon is most likely identified with Rome and the Roman Empire. But we can trace Babylon back to the original city of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, where Nebuchadnezzar actually in Daniel chapter 4 actually calls it Babylon the what? He calls it Babylon the Great. But we can trace Babylon back even further to the Tower of what? The Tower of Babel, where the nations all came together and sought to rise up and build a name for themselves and exalt themselves up to the heavens. And God judged them and God dispersed them. All of those Old Testament occurrences and even the, even the, 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 the structure of Rome as Babylon itself in the first century, they are, but, they are but precursors of what is going to happen ultimately to Babylon that is not just a city itself, but is a picture for all the evil system of the world. And what does it say? In a declaration of just clear, unmistakable clarity, he says Babylon is what? Fallen. The first time he mentions Babylon in the book of Revelation, he says it's what? It's fallen. In other words, the the certainty, the certainty of the fall of the kingdom of men, the certainty of the fall of the kingdom of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet is so sure that the angel says it's what? It's fallen. It's done. Notice its influence. It has made all the nations to drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It has influenced all the nations of the world. And notice what it influenced them with. The passions of her sexual immorality. What what a, what a powerful description of the way the world is around us. It is filled with passions of immorality. I found it interesting, an article I came across back several months ago uh, that Jim Renahan had written where he took up this word passion. Um, We are told often uh, by uh, uh, the evangelical community today uh, that being passionate is something that we want to be. We ought to be Passionate. Passionate about the gospel. Passionate about the things of God. Passionate about the church. Passionate about Jesus. It is what uh, Renahan called a common buzzword of the day. If you aren't passionate, Renahan said, you probably aren't really living as a Christian should. Or so it would seem to be implied. But it seems to me there is a problem with the use of this language. And it ought to cause us to reconsider our terms. The word passion, as it is used in the Bible, is a negative term. It's an evil term. Romans chapter 1, verse 26, God gave them up to vile passions. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Galatians 5, 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Colossians 3.5 Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He ended his article by saying, Are you passionate? Maybe you need to repent. And the point was that the Scripture speaks more of things like affections. 
love for God. It doesn't speak in terms of passion in regard to our relationship with Jesus or the things of God. It's a term that's more identified with things that are here on the earth. Matter of fact, our confession even says that God is without what? He's without passions. And we're calling people to identify with God and be like God, but God has no passions. He's not, it, it's, it's a word that often means like out of control. All right? Um, not a word that's directed toward the glories of God. Now, you may argue with the grammatical issue uh, that Jim wants to take up, saying that, well, they're not using the word passion like that. Well, I understand that, uh, but it's, it's good for us to be clear. And when the Scripture brings out passion, and it always brings it out negatively as something that's evil and something that's of the earth, we ought to think twice about taking that word to be our word to describe something good. <laughs> All right? Uh, it'd be like trying to remake the word adultery into like a good thing. I don't know how you could possibly do that. But, you know, leave it up to modern-day evangelicals. They might find a way to make it happen. I don't know, all right? But the point is, the Scripture, if it's really influencing the way we think and the way we speak, it might be something for us to think about um, using the word passion to refer to our relationship with Christ. Because the passions of the world and the system of the world have fallen. And the, the, the point here of this being this shot across the bow is that, that those who, are, who, who hear the gospel, they have the call to repent that's given to them, this, this day of opportunity, one of the things that we need to be saying to people is to consider the state or the, the destiny, if you will, where is the world and its passion taking you? To use a modern phrase, we might say something like, how is that working for you? All right? The kind of lifestyle that people adopt the sinful patterns and lust of life, the, the, the habits that people adopt, where do they often take them? I don't know if you ever used something like that, Matt, in a prison, but you're sitting there going, you know, look, this guy's adopted drugs, this guy's adopted alcohol all over his life, this guy has adopted a sinful pattern of giving himself to these things over and over and over again. How's it working? It's not working to what? It's not working too well. We need to pause and consider that those who attach themselves to Babylon, those who ally themselves with Babylon and the world, Babylon has fallen. She has fallen. But it gets worse. A third shot across the bow is given, and that is the cost of rebellion. So there is a call to repentance, and there is a consideration of ruin, and there is a cost of rebellion that is given as a third shot across the bow. Look in verses 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. This third angel follows with a third saying or a third shot across the bow. I want you to notice the way this particular text is structured. In verse 
9. He opens with this statement. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Then go down to verse 11. The very end of the verse, it says, They are the worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This, this section opens with a reference made to those who worship the beast and its image, and those who receive a mark on their forehead and on their hand. And it closes with a reference to the same. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So that's the group of people that we're talking about here. This shot across the bow is being given to a specific group of people, those who have identified themselves with the beast, with the dragon, with its image, with the mark of its name. Remember back in Revelation chapter 13, there were some who took the mark of the beast upon them. And they thought, look back in in chapter 13, I believe it's chapter 13, verse 7, Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Now the idea being that if you identify with the world, the promise of the world is is if you really want to have protection, you really want to have provision, you really want to have everything the world has to offer, just sign up with the beast. Just sign up with the beast. Later on, uh, if you look down in chapter 13, in verse, I think it's 15, um, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So in other words, if you do worship the image of the beast, you're not going to be what? If you do worship the image of the beast, you're not going to be slain. You'll be protected. Notice again, verse 16. And it also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast, the number of its name. In other words, if you want to buy, if you want to sell, if you want to trade in the world's economy, if you want to do business in the world, if you want things to go better for you in the world, if you want to escape persecution in the world, what do you do? Sign up with the world! That's the way it often works, isn't it? You want the promotion? You want the pay raise? You want the boss to like you? You want to get along good with the family? Some of you have experienced the pressures of a good old boy network. Or maybe it's a good old girl network now. You know, I don't know. You've experienced those pressures of the world, either in family in your job, in your marriage, with children, with parents, wherever it may be, you've experienced those kinds of pressures. And the world's just saying, look, don't rock the boat, just go along with what? Just go along with the flow, go along with the party, support the party line, just do it. And what happens to those people who do that? They move up the food chain. It gets better for them. This is why David sees so often the wicked what? Prospering. Why do the wicked prosper? 
You only think things are going rough for you at work right now. Make a clear, definitive stand for Christ and see what happens. Now we'll pray, and you can pray, that maybe God will make you a Daniel. And He'll rise you up to the top. Or maybe He'll make you like Esther. And he'll, he'll, he'll bring you in all the way to the king's chamber. And the scepter will be extended to you. And you'll be brought in and the people will be rescued. But we all know what? You can go around and sing Dare to be a Daniel all you like. But you may not be promoted like Daniel. Remember the writer of Hebrews? Some received back their dead to life. But others were what? Sawn in two. And by faith, they were all commended before God. What this shot across the bow is trying to say to this group of people that is identified, have identified with the beast and with the dragon and with the false prophet is you thought that the way to advance in the world and you thought the way to be safe was to what? To just agree and go along and identify yourself with that group. But all you did, hear this, all you did was delay your sorrow and misery till later. And when that sorrow and misery comes later, it will come in full force. And this is what is going to happen. Listen, listen to what it said. In between those, that opening line and the closing line, anyone who worships the beast in its image and receives the mark on its forehead or on its hand, that's the opening line. The closing line, these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. That opening and closing line in this particular section, sandwiched in between there, it says what's going to happen to these people. They will suffer under wrath. The scripture says this, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger. They will suffer under wrath. It is an unmixed wrath. Now, wine, if you want to have its properties not affect you as soon as it might, they would mix the wine sometimes with water. They would call that a mixed, not a mixed drink, but mixed wine. All right? And they would mix the wine with the water. All right? and, and that would allow the person to drink wine longer without the effects you know, affecting them so, so bad, so poorly, or so quickly. But here, the passage is saying, they are going to be made to drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger. They will suffer under wrath. Number two, they will suffer in torment. Listen to the text. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. They will suffer torment. Number three, they will suffer endlessly, the text says, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. The suffering under the wrath of God, the torment and the wrath of God is forever and ever. And number fourth, and finally, they will suffer continuously. And I'm not meaning to say the same thing as endlessly. Endlessly doesn't necessarily mean continu con continuously. Endlessly just means it's never going to end, but there might be a reprieve every now and then. There are going to be no little safe arbors in hell. There will be no reprieves. There will be no coming up for air only to go back down again. There will just be a continual drowning. That's what it will be. 
You know that, that feeling of panic you get in the pool? You ever had it? And you got yourself down a little further than you thought you were going to get down. And you didn't, you didn't know. And I'm not a panicky person. I'm not really a worry person. Right? I, I do that from time to time. But I'm not a panicky kind of person. And I've had that panicky kind of feel. And, and you're looking at the top of the water, and, and you feel like it must be like, I don't know, 20 yards to the top. It's only like six inches, you know. And you wonder how you're going to make it. And you're just, all the movies you've seen, you know, people drowning or coming back, and you're, oh, this is terrible, never going to make it. But you make it. And you get to the top. And you breathe. In hell, there will be no coming up for air. They will have, hear this, no rest. Day or night. The scripture has much to say about the endless suffering of the wicked in hell. Without trying not to comment, I just want you to hear the scripture and what it says. Matthew 8, verse 12. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 49 through 50, so it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark chapter 9, verse 43 through 48, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Luke 16, verses 19-26 through 26, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass, who would pass, who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Matthew chapter 18, verse 8, And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you. 
it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. each one of them according to what they had done, and then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Luis Berkhoff in his systematic theology describes hell as a place of the total absence of the favor of God. A place of endless disturbance of life as a result of the complete domination of sin. A place of positive pains and sufferings in body and soul. A place of such subjective punishments as pangs of conscience, anguish, despair, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Joyce James, in a book that he wrote on the eternity of hell, made this statement. And I want us to hear it as we try to draw this to a close. Last and crowning torture of all tortures of that awful place is its eternity. Oh, dread and dire word, eternity. What mind of man can understand eternity? And remember... It is an eternity of pain. Even though the pains of hell were not so terrible as they are, yet they would become infinite as they are destined to last forever. But while they are everlasting, they are at the same time, as you know, intolerably intense, unbearably extensive. To bear even the sting of an insect for all eternity would be a dreadful torment. What must it be then to bear the manifold tortures of hell forever? Forever. For all eternity. Not for a year or for an age, but forever. Try to imagine the awful meaning of this. 
You have often seen the sand on the seashore. How fine are its tiny grains. And how many of those tiny little grains go to make up the small handful which a child grasps in his play. And now imagine a mountain of that sound, a million, sand a million miles high, reaching from the earth to the farthest heavens, and a million miles broad, extending to remotest space, and a million miles in thickness. And imagine such an enormous mass of countless particles of sand multiplied as often as there are leaves in the forest, drops of water in the mighty ocean, feathers on birds, scales on fish, hairs on animals, atoms in the vast expanse of the air. And imagine that at the end of every million years... A little bird came to that mountain and carried away in its beak a tiny grain of that sand. How many millions upon millions of centuries would pass before that bird had carried away even a square foot of that mountain? How many aeons upon aeons of ages before it carried away all? Yet, at the end of that immense stretch of time, not even one instant of eternity could be said to have ended. At the end of all those billions and trillions of years, eternity would have scarcely begun. And if that mountain rose again after it had been all carried away, and if the bird came again and carried it all the way again, grain by grain by grain by grain, and if it so rose and sank as many times as there are stars in the sky, atoms in the air, drops of water in the sea, leaves on the trees, feathers upon birds, scales upon fish, hairs upon animals, at the end of all these innumerable risings and sinkings of that immensely vast mountain, not one single instant of eternity could be said to have ended. Even then, At the end of such a period, after that aeon of time, the mere thought of which makes our very brain reel dizzily, eternity would scarcely have begun. We just don't think like that about hell. Beloved, it is the wrath of God in hell that Christ was raised from the dead to save you from. And knowing the fear of God, let us as, a, as saints, let us as a church, let us pray that the church around the world might be passionate. See how easy it is to slip into that word? Might be committed to persuading to persuading men with every means that the Scripture gives to us. From the glories of God and the excellencies of Christ and the beauty of the Gospel to the terrors of hell. For Christ has come to be sin for us that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As believers, we should be encouraged in the resurrection As unbelievers, we ought to pause and consider what stands between us and the wrath of God.